0: Level is kind of expected to supervise and mentor the level below them with the chief kind being the oversight, the thousand foot view of everyone's whereabouts. But you expect your junior residents. So we have a two and a three, depending on the team. And you're expecting them to really look at all the minutia that the intern's doing and making sure that's correct and, and doing the small corrections that are necessary there. And knowing enough to involve you when, when something's wrong versus saying, okay, I, this is small enough. I don't need to watch the she
1: knows. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered.
2: Captain Dr. Alexis Lauria is a graduating general surgery chief resident at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. She completed her undergraduate education at Wake Forest University and her medical school at Penn State University. In this episode, Dr. Lauria describes her pathway to military medicine and the factors that influenced her decision to become a general surgeon and future vascular surgeon. She gives insights into general surgery residency, lessons she learned during her training on both mentorship and leadership and describes the process for specialty and subspecialty graduate medical education in the military. I'm your host, Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. Alexis, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Dr. Causey. I'm excited to be here.
2: Alexis, you attended college at Wake Forest University. What was your pathway for getting into the Army? Were you thinking about medicine the whole time?
0: Yeah, I knew pretty early in high school I was interested in medicine, although I didn't really know exactly what, what I wanted to do. But my path to the army was really by chance. I had never heard of really military medicine. I don't think I realized you could do pretty much anything in medicine or in the military, excuse me, that you can do in the civilian world. I and mean, I didn't have family in the military, so it wasn't really a path I was planning for I just happened to be in this shadowing program at the hospital nearby, and I met a nurse that did Navy RTC. It just sounded really interesting. I thought it'd be a fun thing to look into and kind of went down that pathway. Um, ended up getting the scholarship, kind of went with it, and luckily ended up really enjoying it. And then after learning about the program, I think one of the things I wanted to point out is just really blown away that it was not better known. I don't think anyone, there was no resource in my high school, at least, that had mentioned RTC to anyone. It just happened to be the person I ran into that showed me about it.
2: When you were in ROTC, were you in a pre-med pathway, or did you major in something different?
0: We didn't have a formal pre-med pathway at Wake. I majored in basic science, something that would kind of fulfill the requirements for the pre-med application process, but ROTC was very separate from that. I did kind of the basic college requirements, and then ROTC was a separate kind of partial degree in a context of how much class we took from leadership perspective.
2: And what was the process for you to go to medical school as already being signed up in ROTC?
0: To be frank, I think I just kind of had some bad luck early on. The The process of getting the paperwork from ROTC to HPSU was a little bit complicated, or at least in my situation it was. I don't think that's the sort of the norm, but I got really lucky. I had a, um, it was a friend of one of my ROTC colleagues had been in the military for a long time and he helped me navigate the process. And it just kind of goes to show that people in the military and I think people in military medicine will bend over backwards to help you because without him, I probably wouldn't have gotten all the paperwork through and ended up with the HBSP
2: scholarship. So it was
0: tough to navigate as paperwork could be but ultimately worked out well.
2: Well, of course you had all this paperwork, but in addition to the paperwork, you had to actually become accepted to a medical school. So tell us about that interview process and how did you decide on Penn State University for medical school?
0: Yeah, I think one thing I was really unaware of going into ROTC is that you actually have to get an educational delay to go to medical school. It's kind of similar to the academy, so you're not guaranteed to be able to go into medicine up front. Um, I don't think that would have changed what I did, but it was a little surprising to learn later. And so you initially apply to that delay, and then you're granted that or not. And then kind of simultaneously, you start applying for uh, medical school, which is the normal process for ERAS, so just anyone else in the more world with you. And then if you're granted that delay, you get to go forward with the application process and uh, go through the match like a, a regular civilian applicant. Penn State was closer to home. It was a really well-rounded program that had a pretty good background and reputation and in a pretty easy to live location that I thought would be good for kind of sync focus and such. So it was an easy fix for me.
2: While you were in the HPSB program, you were a second lieutenant. What other military activities did you have during your time at medical school and how long were those training periods?
0: Yeah, so there wasn't as much in med school as there was in ROTC, I think just by nature of really
2: needing to be able
0: to focus on studying medicine. But I was involved. We had a military interest group that I was part of through my four years and it helped with kind of networking and making mentorship and kind of helping integrate incoming hsV students to what it means to go into that process. And we had some local veterans activities and such in the area. But beyond that, the, the one major training requirement is the basic officer leadership course, which I did between my first and second year. That's when our program had a break. I um, mean, It's a six-week course in San Antonio. I will say, and you may know more than me at this point, I think it, the timing has changed a bit or some programs don't allow that kind of break in between years of medical school that Previously, they did, so it's worth being ahead of this as an incoming student to really make sure you can get that done during your medical school time.
2: Right, I think that as the medical schools have shifted to having less breaks in the summertime, that uh, that has become a little bit more strenuous. I did the same thing though when I was in our HPSB was between the first and second years. So, w- did you notice any difference between attending Penn State as an HPSB student and your peers <laughs> who? were either paying for it on their own or on other programs?
0: I mean, honestly, I, I had to worry a lot less about paying for books and rent, uh, which just took a lot of stress out of the kind of ancillary things, and I was able to really just focus on the medicine. But really, it, it was quite different than RTC. RTC was kind of like this whole separate life I was leading as a kind of RTC cadet, whereas at HPSB, you're focused on being a medical student. There wasn't a whole lot of additional requirements beyond that training program that we talked about. And I think that's really important to be able to focus on the medicine while you're there.
2: Well, let me start the next part by saying congratulations for finishing six years of general surgery. I think that for most people, training something for six years is about the longest they ever do any type of training in their life. What sparked your interest in general surgery?
0: Uh, Well, thank you, Sarah. It's an
2: exciting time for sure. Really, in
0: um, high school, it's kind of funny. I loved the show ER and I was like very interested in ER because I thought there's all these procedural things you could do in medicine. And I think once I got to know a little bit more about the different specialties, I realized surgery is really what I wanted, because you kind of treat anything that comes your way, uh, especially in general surgery. So I like the idea of doing hands-on things that you can kind of see to completion through the outcome of doing something technical. And and I, I just pursued that early. I achieved uh, opportunities for shadowing that I think helped me solidify it. And I went into all the rotations in medical school, and everyone was like, oh, we're going to talk you out of it. We're going to talk you out of it. And I'm like, okay, like, Maybe will, and maybe that'll make my lifestyle better. But unfortunately, they didn't. And it's just one of those things that just kept building upon itself. And I think the advice I've given to students kind of throughout the past six years is certainly for surgery, you have to be very certain it's what you want to do because it is a big commitment. And um, like you're saying, six years, very long time to be training. I think you really have to know that there's nothing else you'd be happy doing before you can be ready to commit to it.
2: Yeah, I think that's great advice. So the Army has seven, I think maybe now even eight, training programs for general surgery. How did you decide that Walter Reed was the place for you. And tell me a little bit about that interview process and your selection process.
0: So I'm going to start with kind of the interview process. Going into residency, it's a little bit different. You do have the opportunity. And again, this is one of the things that's shifted a bit since I was applying, but I did apply for both. I was pretty sure I wanted to go to a military hospital for training just with the kind of commitment I'd made to the military and how I liked the environment and the people I'd been with throughout RTC. And so I was at the time very interested in trauma and Walter Reed and San Antonio were the two in my mind, and based on what I knew, that would give me the best exposure to that. So those are the two that I uh, did my interview rotations with. One of the really big advantages of the, the military HPSP program is you get a funded month to go interview uh, at a location that you want to go to for residency, and I think that's you just can't get that experience to get to know the place and the people and decide that that's what you want to do for six years. Um, so I had a great rotation both at San Antonio and at Walter Reed. I would have been happy at either training facility. I'd Walter Reed, I think from a location and just kind of the reputation, the being a place where all the wounded warriors come to first was really important to me. And then the ability to go to shock trauma. Again, I was interested in trauma at the time and just kind of immerse yourself in this really intense training for trauma for multiple months of my residency was a big deal. So that, that ultimately, and I think just my sit was what got me to go with Walter Reed.
2: were you required at the time to interview at all of the military programs with their program directors or just the ones that you were interested in?
0: So I think that has changed and it's not required to interview at all of them. I did rank them all, but I only really like prioritized the two that I spent the month at. And I think with there being so few programs, it's kind of known if you, you you go spend a month with them, they're going to be high on your list. And if you don't, that's probably not a place you're as interested in.
2: And so you get the sense that you're going to become a general surgeon. What is the Army process at the time you were doing it for actually being allowed to train as a general surgeon? Because that's a step that I think most people may not understand is step one is actually to have the army say, yes, you're the type of person we want to train to become a general surgeon.
0: For the application process, again, there, there are parallels to ERAS and what you do in the civilian world. It's just different online programs. So there's uh, the mods, is the website that you apply through for the military. And just like you do for civilian, you have personal statements, you upload all of your records from the school, transcripts, et cetera, letters of recommendation into that system. And then there's certain deadlines you have to have that in by. And then you rank everyone on the mod system, which includes ranking the military programs and then whether or not you want civilian deferred, which again, I think has shifted a little bit.
2: If you're like me, you graduated medical school and you're super excited and everyone walked around calling each other doctor, 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 probably a, a bunch of times. And then the reality of life sets in and that you're actually going to the hospital on day 1 saying, "Oh wow, I'm a I'm a I'm a doctor now. I I'm in charge of potentially people's lives." Tell us about your initial job as a general surgery intern at Walter Reed and what did you find were your most significant challenges.
0: Yeah, uh, there are certainly a few. I mean, becoming an intern is just such a shift from being in med school, kind of controlling your time, being able to say, okay, I've got four hours today to sit and study and four hours of lecture. It's just a different world. And for most of us who were, like you're saying, have been in education since we're able to walk, um, it's a shift. I think my biggest challenge early on was you work forever to get to this point. Like your whole training experience has been to get to this intern year, to get into this program for training. And I think I was expecting, like, every day to be this glorious, like, life-saving situation with some big cooperation. And you realize you're doing a lot of not gratifying work early, early on, and, and mm-hmm. it humbles you. And it kind of reminds you, you've got to put a lot of work in early to get to advance your surgical program. because It's such high-stress-type situations you're in, and you got to really own it. And really, it was a marathon on a sprint, so I think coming into intern you just finding the balance and wanting to do it all and see everything, and be there for everything, but also need to be able to gear up to the next day's challenge. and and that, that balance took the time for sure. Um, but in hindsight, you look back and you realize like how much all of that hard work, that not gratifying stuff actually taught you about take care of patients.
2: I think one of the things you pointed out that I, I think is probably underappreciated is that not only is the whole process of becoming a surgeon graduated in regards to training people and leadership but also just a graduated increasing level of stress. What did you find was the way you handled the stressful clinical situations when you were an intern and junior resident?
0: Yeah, so funny as a chief seeing how I I just being reminded as an intern, as like, this is the most stressful thing in the world. And then each year you're like, no, no, that wasn't even a little bit stressful compared to what it is now. I've really leaned on my class a lot. At this point, I've become family. And I think just having people who are going through similar can just help you kind of level with what you're seeing and realize that it's not just you that's feeling the way you're feeling uh, was very, very important.
2: So if Walter Reed's like every other general surgery program that I've talked to people in or have been a faculty on, they call the mid-level residents in the second and third years the surgeon of the day, particularly when they're on call for the ER or the SOD. Is that the way it is at Walter Reed? And tell me about... That second and third year.
0: Yeah, that's the same thing at Walter Reed or the SOD. And, uh, you've got the SOD sewn and you're kind of on call for whoever needs some kind of surgical consult, whether it's general surgery or not. They usually are the first call. Uh, it was, it certainly was stressful coming in PGYT year. You just did an intern year. Most of that year is really basic floor work and such. Mm-hmm. Now you're suddenly consults. It was a, it's great for learning. I think you. But you basically are going to go see the patient, do the whole HP and evaluation, come up with a plan, and then present that to your chief. So it it forces you to get more and more comfortable with kind of management and next-level steps of what you're going to do with these patients for surgery. Typically, at Walter Reed, we do it as, uh, depending on the team, it's usually a 24-hour call that you're holding the feature. So you get however many pages you get, and then in the morning, present them to the program to discuss management strategies, which is a really good learning opportunity, both to kind of be kind of pushed to make sure you, read about everything you're addressing, and then also to get those oral presentation skills, which are really important for boards.
2: I think one of the important things that the military has done right in the general surgery programs is that the residents get a wide breadth of varying experiences. And a lot of that involves rotations at external hospitals, so civilian hospitals. Tell us about some of your memorable external rotations?
0: They're all memorable in their own way. We have a really good balance of core programs that are core rotations at Walter Reed and then these outside rotations to get some
2: more subspecialized
0: experience. I'm obviously very biased um, as a little special learn leader, but of my vast experience at uh, Nova Fairfax was extremely busy, uh, high yield across the board. Uh, and then I think one that we're a little more notorious for, and again, one of the reasons that I initially picked Walter Reed was our uh, experience at Shock Trauma. And we spent four months there as a PGY4 and uh, a few months in the, the years prior in you just see trauma like you really won't see at many community type hospitals. It's, it's very operative. Uh, you could be really involved as a leader in the trauma bay, and it's a, it's a great experience just overall to develop as a surgeon.
2: You mentioned shock trauma, and there's been a move in surgery to maintain readiness for staff by having them go to billion military partnership programs. And one of those is actually Baltimore shock trauma. Did you have a lot of interaction? with military staff while you were at shock trauma as your in your fourth year?
0: Yeah, I did, which was great. It was kind of an interesting way of networking with people that I wouldn't have probably otherwise run into for a while. So they, there's the C-STARS program, which is where uh, there's like an integrated Air Force surgeon that works essentially at shock trauma as their full-time job. So I, I worked with a handful of them um, each time I was there. And then there are now some, like you're, you're alluding to, other staff that are coming through. And so it's fun because they don't have to know who you are, or even have any necessarily like, know a person. You're your military, so you're family to them. So they look out for you, and that makes the rotation even more educational.
2: Well, I've seen your CV now probably for two or three years in a <laughs> row because I was part of the process for choosing people for fellowship. And your CV is is pretty stellar. You did a research year. Tell us about that time and what research you were involved in.
0: Yeah, I still look back. And it was, I mean, every year of residency is been fun for different reasons or a learning experience for different reasons but research year was really really great. It's a nice break obviously you get outside of the clinical world outside of waking up at four or five in the morning and get to own a little bit more of your time but um, the lab I worked in which is the battlefield shock in organ sport lab at uniform service university which is right on campus was a hands-on all of our experience with animal models and so not only did I get to really grow in the realm get to kind of work with uh, like lab assistants work with industry, just you know, be on the weekly research meetings, kind of understand what it's like to work and, and run a lab. Uh, but I also get to do a lot of hands-on technical things, which was great, because I was a little n- nervous about taking year off of that. So we were doing faster exposures for access on the animals, uh, in addition to all the basic science components of kind of measuring the outcome. So it was a really fun experience. Uh, it, it's a quick year, and sometimes, in hindsight, would more time have made it more productive probably, but I think having one year and then getting back to clinical was the right step for me.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, one thing people may not fully appreciate as they hear your productivity is that when you say get a break, what, what you mean is that the college of graduate medical education limits the number of hours that a general surgery resident or any resident across the country can work in a single week. And that's 80 hours, but averaged over four weeks. And so When someone says they're taking a break, I don't know if you were like me, but that actually meant that you're now only working 60 hours and that it was mostly during the day as opposed to two or three nights a week added in there. Is that about the same experience?
0: We luckily in my year, luckily or not, I guess, did not have any overnight models. There was actually an overnight animal model in the following year. So I got to have a full year of not being up all night, but my predecessor didn't have as much luck.
2: Oh boy. (laughs) So I know that I saw you at several of the vascular surgery meetings. I remember particularly the first time we met, which was in the annual Society for Vascular Surgery meeting. What are some memorable trips you took to present your research? And what were some of your findings that you thought were most important to the military?
0: Yeah, I mean, here my bias will definitely come out. Most of my major meetings have been vascular and then a couple trauma. I had gone to meetings with a student. I think it was definitely a different field with the resident because now you're more in the networking, meeting with people that you'll work with in the future, because at that point you kind of know where you're going. And I was just really overwhelmingly impressed by how welcoming the academic community was ambassador. Um, I really just had to run into one staff or mentor that I knew you probably saw Dr. Properly really showing me around everyone and making sure I met at least another five to ten there just to help me kind of progress as I started my early career and uh, so it's just it's a really good balance of uh um, interesting talks saying earlier interesting cases and then some networking and then a little bit of fun I had a great time at the the van meeting and then I think the other really memorable one of my was in my fourth year with going to the best which was a ski meeting which is a blast uh, I never thought I'd be presenting in a sweatshirt but turns out that the ski meeting is a little more casual you get kind of on and off the slopes and go present your research at the back on the slope so it was really fun
2: Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Those those meetings work uh, mornings and evenings so that uh, when it's dark and then they're not during the day. So it's sort of almost like a night shift for a a meeting. (laughs) Exactly. In, In your fourth year, this was the year that you applied for vascular surgery fellowship. And that's when you and I got to know each other better. And you had to apply both for an army position and also for a civilian fellowship spot within that selection process. Tell us about the army process and the civilian process.
0: Yeah, so this was really a whirlwind. We all get through it, and but I'll tell you, like going into our busiest clinical year and then working on applications was definitely forced me to really be focused with every minute of my day. So the Army process, it was, this is where it was a little more similar to ROTC and applying for HDSP in medical school. So the first step is getting the Army to say, yes, you can go train, and you'll either train at a Perry Fellowship, if that's available, or you'll train at a civilian. And so step one was just like through the MODS application process for for residency. I submitted my packet, which included letters of recommendation, personal statement, all my credentials, board scores, et cetera, into the MODS portal. And then that, I think is like a mid-October due date. And then by December, you find out if you have or have not been allowed to train. Um, you rank, of course, which of your preferences to train in a military hospital, if that's available or if it is trained in a civilian program. But simultaneously, because the ERAS portal opens in November, you have to start that application or ideally you get it kind of ready to go. So you're um, behind the curve if you get accepted, apply. So you start ERAS, which is similar. Uh, all the same requirements. Usually you kind of shift your letters to be a little more civilian focused. If you're applying for civilian programs versus the mod letters, you want to be kind of thing. This is why I'm doing it for the military. And if you find out in December that you're allowed to proceed, you submit your ERAS application, or I think you have to be, actually can submit it a little bit earlier if you want to roll the dice. And then you find out about the military, you go through the ERAS application, do the standard civilian interview process, uh, which since I've done it, I think since the year before me is all virtual. And then uh, you find out it's matched for a program and then you go forward with
2: that. I think it's interesting how things have changed. I actually ended up spending $10,000 to do all of my Mm -hmm. vascular surgery fellowship interviews. And now everyone says that they're online and virtual, but on the same token, it's actually turned out better because you and I uh, had our first sort of discussion about the Army process um, virtually, and it would have normally have been a phone call, but because of the advent of Zoom, we, I was actually able to, to see you and meet you even in the midst of COVID. I think that you mentioned something that's very important for the applicants that maybe we should say out loud, and that is that when you apply for the military system, you want to make sure that you have recommendation letters from military people because The process is military centered so that people reviewing your application are active duty military versus if you're going to do a civilian application process, you want to have recommendation letters, some from military, but also some from those external rotations you had for fellowship. Do you have any other tips that you might have for people who are thinking about applying for residency or fellowship in civilian having gotten a sponsorship or deferment from the military?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a really good thing to bring up because it's kind of nuanced. And I think, of course, it'd be all your letters and, and apply them to both. But it's really important to personalize it uh, and show your focus because if you're applying for a civilian program, they want to know why you want to be working with them and training with them. I think it highlights the importance of civilian rotations. I think early in those rotations, you because many of them are a month or two months, so you, you can't wait till the end to be like, oh, yes, whichever vascular surgeon I would like your letter, you want to early on identify the people goal get to know you, you'll get to operate with, and they'll, they'll write you a good letter, and then let them know early, hey, by the end of this rotation, I intend to ask you for a letter if you're comfortable, and then follow up with them, remove work, you got to be on top of that stuff. And the other thing, just just like the letters, your personal statement for the military system should be slightly different. In my experience, it worked well to have something that was a little more focused, like, hey, this is why I want to do VASTER in the military. And then, hey, civilian programs, this is why I want to train at your program and become a vascular surgeon for my whole life, my whole career. Um, and Just make sure they're seeing you as kind of why you want them. That's really critical.
2: Cool. We're going to put an asterisk on what we just said and say that those are our personal opinions and not the expressed opinions yes. of the Department of Defense or Army or military graduate medical education, because those are truly our personal opinions on the application process. So, When you became a chief resident, and for everyone that's a chief resident in general surgery, that is your last year. So every last year, general surgery trainee is a chief resident. That's the culmination of residency in a time where you have significant responsibilities, run a surgical team, and really make a transition to primary surgeon. Tell us about that year, the one that you've just now finished.
0: Yeah, I think the overarching uh, thing that I realized is teaching is really hard. And I don't think I realized how much credit my teachers and mentors deserved when they were getting me through, struggling through operations as a junior resident. It's just more challenging than I realized to manage all of the other stress we have as a chief, which are, again, each year built. Now you're managing all the patients on your service. You're managing all the students, junior residents. You're managing the staff, whether we want to admit to that or not. Um, and then you, you go to the OR and you have to have the pain and the energy to, to try to articulate how someone should do an operation. It just takes a lot of practice, a lot of patience, and I, I definitely grew a lot in that role this year, but I, I was—I didn't realize the challenge.
2: You mentioned something interesting, and I'm going to give just a little bit of background. And one of the aspects of the general surgery residency is learning to become a leader of the team. So that is a large part of the training program is actually the, the leadership aspect of surgery. And that leadership is in the operating room or leading a multidisciplinary team or an, a resident team. I'm sure most of our listeners can appreciate a surgeon being a leader in the operating room, but one of the other aspects is being part of the resident team, beginning as an intern, doing a lot of the minute-to-minute issues, and finally becoming a chief resident where you're leader of the team. And we're talking about leading teams that are five to 10, and potentially even bigger when you get into ICUs with multidisciplinary teams, where those teams can get up to 20, or in burns, potentially even bigger than that. And you're responsible now for not only doing their surgeries, organizing your team, but you organize their patient care. You organize all the operating room schedules of the residents. You coordinate care of consults coming through the emergency room. And then you have to worry about the care before and after the surgery through discharge and outpatient. Tell us a little bit about how the general surgery teams are organized at Walter Reed. And what was the hardest part that you found of leading the team as a chief resident.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm tired just looking at all those things. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's hierarchical, like I think most surgical programs are. I I think maybe in the military, compared to some of the civilian programs I've rotated that, we're, we're a little more focused on that hierarchy, but I think it really helps you stay organized and it helps you develop yourself as a leader because that, that model, that hierarchy, kind of puts you in the position to gain the respect that you need to be a leader. So each level is kind of expected to supervise and mentor the level below them, uh, with the chief kind of being the oversight, the thousand foot view uh, of everyone's whereabouts, but you expect your junior residents, so we have a two and a three, depending on the team, and you're expecting them to really look at all the minutia that the intern's doing and making sure that's correct and and doing the small corrections that are necessary there. And knowing enough to involve you when when something's wrong versus saying, okay, this is small enough, I don't need to let the chief know. The intern, I mean, we all know is kind of the workhorse on the team. And that's kind of their main focus. They, they get the students involved in some of the day to day type stuff. The two and the three gets to grow as like, how do I filter what is that isn't a problem? And how do I prioritize and how do I decide what, what do I bring to my chief versus handle on my own? And that's a a thing that I think takes a lot of experience and kind of maturity. And and then as a cheese is scary because you're like, what things am I not hearing about? What things do I need to micromanage? Um, And then. Fourth year residents are typically on the answer. So it's usually an intern, two or three, and then a chief. And uh and again, the chief is kind of the looking at everything, trying to keep things organized, moving forward, and then teach on top of all of that. So it's definitely, I think the hierarchical nature of it allows for each person to really grow in their role and to, to learn how to be a leader step by step as opposed to just kind of being all thrown at you at once when you become a chief.
2: A lot of medical students may listen to this and say, oh, I don't know if I can do general surgery or I'm on the fence between general surgery and some other specialty. What would you tell medical students if you were to give them some advice and tell them what may be different from being a resident from their observations and being a medical student on their surgery rotations?
0: Yeah, I think um, it's nice at least at Walter Reed students. They get a good exposure to kind of the, the lifestyle they're
2: expected to take some call and be with us kind of day
0: to day on the team. But there's just difference in responsibility you'll you'll have more that you're doing now as a student you don't necessarily see but I would say to not be intimidated by it because yes you're going to see the chief who might like I'm sure at some points in the year like looks like their hair is on end and they're running around in circles and just like constantly chasing something down but like we're talking about it's graded and so each level the way you're kind of mentored by someone above you to figure out how to balance those responsibilities and very much doable. Uh, that's why it takes years to learn are in a balance, but I would not be intimidated by kind of what we're talking about with all this additional responsibility because again, it's a step-by-step process. You, Each year you learn a new skill and, and
2: grow upon that. I think you mentioned something earlier that I remembered back from my general surgery residency is that it is tough, but there is a team aspect to it because you have all of your other co-residents who are going through exactly the same thing. The chief residents have done the same thing, but you really have a tight knit bond between the other co-residents. Is that the experience that you had as well?
0: Yeah. I mean, you can't replace it. I think even if it weren't, I'm spoiled. My class and maybe everyone says this, but I just feel like my class, it was just such like a great group of people, just a great fit for each other. So it's from day one and we've become a family and lean on each other. But even I think people that maybe wouldn't outside of military medicine or surgery have been people that got along. You're just, you're working these insane hours with each other. You just go through this experience that it's impossible to not become close to these people. And it's an incredible relationship to have. I, I uh, recently got married. My uh, officiant was one of my classmates and two of my program and one of the someone in my class and someone in the with me were in my wedding. I mean, they're truly family. They're people that'll stay in touch with for the rest of my life. And I honestly couldn't have gotten through the program if I didn't have that
2: that's fantastic. congratulations yeah you had told me about that last week. you, you just got married what a couple of weeks ago
0: yeah, two weeks ago and we basically right after we finished my whole class came up to Bar Harbor Maine and for the wedding and it was a blast and it just again it just goes to show these we've all been in each other's weddings big, big parts of it it's just it inside and outside the hospital be able to have your back
2: and they put a big sign on the front door saying all our chief residents are gone no, I'm I'm kidding. I know that the the fours were more than ready to take over because that's the way the system's designed. But tell me now, what is oh, yeah. your steps to finishing and becoming a fully board certified general surgeon?
0: Yeah, it's just like every other step in medicine. You think you've made it and you're there, but there's there's a few more things to check off. So uh, you finish residency and there's some graduation activities are upcoming, but the really important part uh, of the next few months is board. So um to become a board certified general surgeon, you have to pass first year qualifying exam, which is a written exam. So it's similar to the what we call the ab site we take every year uh, as our certifying exam, uh, but longer and obviously a little bit more um, important. So you exam that you take every six years kind of prepares you for this. You get some time off to study, ideally. You take your certifying exam, and then when you pass, you then sign up to take qualifying exam, which is an oral boards where you're basically asked through. Now, again, virtually like everything else has become uh, a series of clinical scenarios, and you have to kind of demonstrate that how to safely manage patients, carry them through an operation and their post-op care and such. And so it's something again. I think one of the strengths of a lot of the military programs is certainly at Walter Reed, we prepare for really from day one. You're expected to stand up in front of the program and describe your management plans. And I think having that experience gets you more prepared so that part of it intimidating. Uh, but those are two big boxes to check before becoming officially board certified as a surgeon.
2: After you take your certifying exam, what are your next plans with the army? Uh,
0: yeah, so I was very lucky, uh, as I think we've alluded to, to go through the fellowship match process and be granted uh, the firm into trade as civilian program, so I'll be starting vascular surgery fellowship at Hopkins in August.
2: Yes, congratulations. That's going to be a great program. So I wanted to ask you just a little bit about mentorship, because I think that's also important. people probably recognize that a lot of times people actually pick their specialty, their subspecialty, in particular, like vascular surgery colorectal surgery trauma surgery based on their mentors tell us about your mentors during residency and how you ended up finding them and connecting
0: yeah that's it, such a good point I and mean, it's really insane to think like what if i hadn't met this person or run into this person would that have changed my whole trajectory i'm going to cheat and back up a little because it really started in medical school i i found trauma was interesting it's high pace you're we doing a lot mm. of like procedural stuff especially as a student you get to see just kind of the procedural parts of it but I had really strong mentors in trauma in medical school and I mean it's just you look up to them and you're like I want to do what you're doing I, I like that and at the time I think you have a, a less of a scope as a student uh, than obviously as a surgical resident into what each specialty is like so I didn't know enough to know at that point that I wanted to do vascular but I really like trauma and those staff that I'm um, self-contact with today are really I, were people I looked up to and wanted to be like and I think that just it's motivating it makes you want to do whatever it takes to get to that level, which involves some more research, extra care and stuff, extra kind of shadowing or whatever you would call it in medical school to get exposure. Um, and then I got into residency. And I think what I learned as a resident is you really need, and I, this has been impressed on me by a couple of mentors, is you got to find mentors for each avenue. And that will often overlap, but not always. You need someone that's kind of going to be like your life's career trajectory mentor, someone who's kind of got the perspective of what you need long term, whether it's military or in surgery or both someone who's your research mentor, um, and then someone who's kind of more your academic mentor, helping you get through your day-to-day, like what's going on in your program type stuff. And again, that that typically overlaps, but not always. And you want to make sure you're covering all those things. I think, I feel like I've been really spoiled by mentorship, but really early on, one of our vascular staff, um, Dr. Joe White, identified that I seemed to really enjoy myself on vascular at the time I was in it, So I was like, I don't know. It was hard to to know what I really liked and didn't like. I just, that rotation, I got to do more, and that made it more, I think, sing. So he he's one of the people that I think early on sparked my ambassador just as someone who I respected and enjoyed working with, and who identified me as someone who seemed interested in it. As I progressed through, I gained more mentorship with so you know, again more on the career standpoint, people who are in Vastar, who I mean, Dr. Proper, of course, you know, is one of the people that really got me through the interview and application process and helped me figure out what I wanted to do with Vassar. So just people that I looked up to, seeing what they did and how much they enjoyed it, I think really. Uh, made it pretty easy to not only be solidified in the specialty I want, but to interact with them and to help kind of have them help guide me through the the next steps into becoming a vascular surgeon.
2: Interesting for me to hear you say those names because Dr. Joe White and I were interns together at Madigan and certainly I'm great friends with Dr. Brandon Proper. He actually was my partner in vascular surgery in San Antonio and lived down the street from me. My Mm Question for you, though, is what characteristics do you think make up a good staff mentor while you're in your residency?
0: Yeah, and I think in my long rambling of different mentors, I think it's important to mention that, like, again, just like eating someone in each kind of realm, I think you got to, each realm, and it's depending on kind of you and your values, find the person that has characteristics that work for you in that realm, so... I had a lot, and I don't want to discredit the mentors I'd had in general surgery, not people that I could go, our our program, one of the things I really liked, you just walk into anyone's office and kind of ask them a question, and they would have your back. So there's people that just helped with the navigation of what do you want to do, and I think part of that was really people that had a lot of kind of experience in the military and exposure to what will be coming. So I think one of those things you want from the, your kind of quote-unquote career mentor is having enough background and exposure to help you Decide what makes the most sense um, for the long term because it's it's hard as a resident to be beyond the six years of training that you're in and then I think like globally when I think of all the mentors that I've had uh, those that were really able to kind of uh, I say don't break a sweat like they just seemed like despite all the, the chaoticness all that you're probably the five thousandth email of their day they they just seemed to be able to kind of maintain composure be on top of it and when you were with them as a mentee and they were sitting with you they just you were the focus uh, they were genuinely interested in what you're doing and and happy to be there to help you and made it about you, which is really important. I and mean, I think one of the mentors I, I didn't mention, Dr. S. Rasmussen, who I think has been interviewed at least once on here and is well known. He's one of those people that I just, he's constantly bringing everyone around him up. He's talking so highly about you. And I think having, that's something I want to bring forward because having someone in an email like this excellent resident, this person, this, it just makes you feel good, but also it helps you take the next steps with other people to have someone in your core like that.
2: You almost really don't appreciate how much people care about your future until you apply for something like a fellowship and realize that they really do want you to succeed in whatever your career pathway is. What would you say would be a mentorship lesson that you learned or observed from one of your mentors that you really want to try to carry forward with you as you become a staff?
0: Yeah, I don't know if this is the right word per se, but I think humility as a mentor, I I realize the people that have, and it's like across all the names I've mentioned that have really built me up to where I've been today, are those who seem to really get kind of out of their own skin in a sense and and see and try and understand what I need. Uh, And I think that's hard. I think it takes a lot more energy to, to really not just sit there and say, well, here's what I think you should do, or here's, like, these are my values, I want to impress those upon yourself, but to actually kind of get into that mentee mind, you know, get to know them to the level that you can say, "Okay, I understand this is what you value, and I think that would be the best next step for you for this reason. So I think just being able to be, again, kind of out of your own skin, kind of get out of your ego and, and see what that person needs and wants is, is important, and I've been lucky to have that kind of mentorship.
2: The new set of general surgery chief residents are either transitioned already or are about to make a transition here in the next week or two. What advice would you give to a general surgery resident that's about to become a chief resident and lead surgery team?
0: Yeah, I think globally uh, being organized and, and being able to compartmentalize your stressors is really important because it's hard, especially when you're tired and you've had a tough week or you've had a tough case scenario to not let the stress of one thing bleed into another. And you're the example for the team and you're setting the tone so if you look like um oh man this this just totally broke me down and then you kind of let that bleed into your interaction with your junior residents and your students that affects everyone in the tone of kind of your, your workflow and it's tough but i think sometimes you just got to take a second close your door just process with the usually your peers that's that was my strategy and then and then move on with your team with clarity and that that keeps things i think A little bit more well balanced but it's a challenge and you're not used to that because I think typically in your your, the junior role you're kind of one-to-one with the people that you're dealing with the stressors with and there's not as many people below you to to have to kind of shield from that Um, and I think uh, one of the things I learned in RTC as a leader that was one of the big feedback points that I got was showing that you care about your people makes a world of difference to their respect for you as a leader I think we sometimes can think that it's not easily perceived. Like if you're just trying to get through the motions and leave the team and get stuff done versus when you really care. But I will say I've, I've gotten that feedback repeatedly and I think I've seen it and I've seen the defects and how a team runs when it perceives that that person's got your best interest in mind, not just their own.
2: One of the things I didn't fully appreciate that my general surgery staff had done for me was that they really had built a level of autonomy for me that I didn't quite appreciate was happening. They They were always (laughs) looking over my shoulder, but they did it in a way that made me think that I was doing it on my own. And and the reason for that, I didn't find out until later on, was that six months after I finished my training, I found myself in southern Afghanistan at a split forward surgical team, and I was the only general surgeon that was there. there. There were people you could call, but there wasn't anybody that would be there to rescue you if something happened. Do you find that to be the case at the training program at Walter Reed, that they are looking for ways to give you independence, yet still ensure that the patient care is ideal.
0: Yeah, it is. It's like uh, I don't know how they manage it, but they're they're like they're there, but they're not there. I think they're quote related to that. But uh, as an intern, like we, we have like I think most general surgery programs and and like community programs and such have like a minors clinic. So you start as an intern. One of our services, the minors is kind of your realm. So you get to do these like HOMA and decisions, and it's gradated. You're not left alone. You've got a junior resident walking me through it as you begin. Um and then again the chief is kind of the oversight. So depending on the residents, the the time of year, et cetera, the chief is or isn't directly involved, but that's kind of our lowest risk kind of least oversight opportunity for I think a lot of independence and autonomy very early on uh, and that allows the whole team to then understand again those like what is too high risk Who do, what do I need to come to the chief with or the staff with even uh, and then as as we progress around you know the smaller procedures that might be just the chief and the junior resident in the room but the staff has got their ears poked in or they show up at the critical point make sure everything's done right and they expect you and they give you their, the autonomy to say hey if you're struggling you need to call me but it's very subtle, and it just grows and grows and grows. Even throughout chief year, it's amazing that the staff, we're lucky because I think our staff know us really well because the amount of time we do spend at Walter Reed um, with this core group of staff, they, they can tell at what point in the year as a chief you're ready to be left alone in the gallbladder or an appy or whatever it is. And and they know your juniors well enough to know that that is a junior that you can or cannot be left alone teaching and teach assisting, uh, which is a lot of responsibility, but it's really important, sure, when you get out and right. after
2: Right. I find that it is very obvious once the chief resident has made that transition in their mind that I am now a surgeon. I can operate by myself. It's actually the confidence part that sometimes limits them in the surgical operations. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's probably one of the challenges which I, I didn't mention, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just, you don't realize how much like the safety straps are on earlier really until you're really left alone in a room in a case, and then you have to say, okay, I'm going to own this case. I'm going to lead the through it. I'm going to make the decisions, and we're going to do it safely. And it, it's just a different level of confidence that you, know, you think you got it when you're running rounds, but it's it's different in the operating room, and it's important to learn, I think, in a, a safe environment as in a training program before you get out there as a staff.
2: So what was your favorite surgery and which one did you find to be the most challenging?
0: I'm going to keep it in the general surgery realm for now, but I would say as a resident in spite of going into vascular, I actually really enjoyed the challenges of laparoscopic ectomies. I think the anatomy is always really interesting and they're typically and there are certainly the easy ones, but there's some that are a good struggle that can be really gratifying at the end. But I'm going to cheat and use that as my example for the most challenging because that was by far the scariest case to there's so much important anatomy right in the field of operation and you're using long sticks and like one small movement could be a real issue. And uh, so while they're fun to do uh, and they became fun to teach, they got more comfortable. They were certainly the most challenging and most uh, terrifying. So take, I think with, uh, most of the staff would like say take years after your life watching some junior residents or even chief residents struggle through a gallbladder.
2: Gallbladder correlative for vascular surgery is going to be the leg angiogram. So you can take pictures of the circulation of a leg, and there's going to be an unknown and infinite number of blockages, narrowings, or other things. And you have to decide on the spot, how am I going to treat this problem? And decide whether you have a treatment modality that has about four or five different treatment options. So your gallbladder will now become your peripheral angiogram. What do you (laughs) find to be your most interesting vascular surgery case?
0: Yeah, I I bet you this will change as I get through fellowship and get more and do more Uh, because I think as a resident, you tend to, in a general surgery training program, do a little bit less on the endo side, but I think I will grow to really love that more. Uh, But I would say, and it's probably typical for most residents, like this thing usually equates to the big open bloody cases. So, of course, open aortic aneurysm repairs. And then what really struck me as a PTY4 was some of the aortic endograph experiments that I've seen. I mean, they're just huge cases. The anatomy is so distorted by all the inflammation and the scar, and it. Uh, it's really, it's a journey of a challenge getting through those operations, but it's, it's pretty gratifying to be able to fix that problem.
2: I had to ask that since I'm a vascular surgeon, just more out of curiosity. <laughs> what would you tell someone who was considering pursuing military training to become a general surgeon?
0: I think most people do this, but come into it humble, be ready to work. Uh, Again, from day one, it's not like immediately gratifying every day of the week. That's just not reality, I think, in any specialty or in any career. And you got to come in humble and you got to be ready to do the work, but then to be rewarded by treating what I would consider some of the best patients out there. I mean, treating soldiers and and their families, or retirees is really, really gratifying. There are certainly different challenges than you'll see in the civilian world, working in a military institution. But at the same time, and I've learned this throughout training, there's different challenges everywhere. Every civilian and military hospital, I, I've seen the challenges parallel or are different and balance each other out. They're just different flavors of challenge. So don't get uh, in the mindset of saying, "Well, I'm here and there's this problem, and now this is this specific institution problem." Because it's big organizations. There's issues everywhere, and I think you just got to learn to find ways around those things. to Be ready to work. And then uh, another thing that I think I've highlighted today the relationship you make in the military and I think in a surgical training program are are really different than any other uh, and don't take them for granted and enjoy them and they'll carry you through even throughout training these are people that have shaped me for life and then lastly military I think when you're looking at military versus civilian training it it just opens up opportunities that you'd otherwise not see I mean we didn't talk a whole lot about RTC, but I got to go to Taiwan as a part of that uh, training and things that I would just never have done outside of the normal college life and then outside of the normal surgical career. We're going to see things across the country and in different countries that we would never get to do otherwise.
2: have been joined today by Captain Dr. Alexis Loria. Alexis, thank you for joining us today and thank you for your service. Thanks so much, sir.
1: Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts, and rate and review this episode, and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.